Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Welcome to Ivy League Murders, and before we start, uh, I want to thank everyone for listening, and we just want to start out this week by saying that we appreciate all the support. We have reached 600 members of our group on Facebook. Yippee! We're loving our group and everyone's participation, and we have come this far on our own, Sarah. We started this podcast on an iPhone, actually, but right now we're asking for our listeners' support. That's right. So please buy us a cup of coffee. Actually, Laura and I are drinking delicious coffee right now, but please buy us a cup of coffee. Why don't you explain what that means, Sarah? (laughs) I'm going to be a little confused. So buy me a coffee is a very simple way that you can donate to Ivy League Murders and we really need it, guys. So please, if you enjoy listening to this, please consider donating five bucks, however many coffees you feel like it, at Buy Me a Coffee. And we're posting it all over Facebook. We'll put it on our group. And we also have a donate button on our website. So we're just looking for support, no matter how small. And now on to the show. On a more serious note, Sarah. Yeah. So this week is such a heartbreaking case. This is the case of Annie Lay. And Annie Lay was a beautiful and brilliant 24-year-old researcher who disappeared from a Yale University laboratory on September 8th of 2009. And this was five days before her wedding, Laura. Where was Annie? It was a story that gripped the nation as all the details unfolded. Per usual with Ivy League murders, we like to go into some of the little interesting facts about the universities that we cover. So what do we what do we got this week, Laura? Well, this week we have Yale. So what can you tell us, Sarah, about some of the background of Yale in the beginning? So in 1718, the charter for a collegiate school became Yale University when LAU Yale donated the proceeds from nine bales of goods, 417 books, <laughs> and a portrait of King George I. I love it. Can you imagine like, if you could have a major Ivy League university named after you? from like selling a few goods and a few books and and, and, a, and an old portrait. That would be great. So I loved this. And yeah, this is my favorite one. <laughs> Laura found this one. In 1889, a student purchased a bulldog in front of a blacksmith for $5. Handsome Dan, as he was called, became Yale's mascot. That's why it's like the bulldog Yale mascot. And so since the passing of the original, there have been 18 subsequent 
Handsome Dan's. I know, and the 18th, Handsome Dan the 18th actually was born in 2016. And we've actually. And he's adorable. He's adorable. We'll post a picture of Handsome Dan the 18th because he is the cutest little puppy. I think I might change Brutus's name to Handsome Dan. <laughs> Why not? You know? Handsome Brutus. Handsome Brutus. I'm a little obsessed with the next one. And I think a lot of people are. The Skull and Bones. Oh, yes, you are. Tell us a little bit about what you found out about Skull and Bones. Well, Skull and Bones is a a very old secret society at Yale. And it's really the oldest secret society that we know about. I love that the headquarters of Skull and Bones is called the Tomb. It's called the Tomb. And they keep relics in the tomb, including an actual skull. Many people speculate that it's Geronimo, the Apache leader's skull, and in 2009, his descendants unsuccessfully sued Skull and Bones to get the skull back. That's right, yeah. I mean, this sounds like a movie, but it's actually true. And we'll post a picture of that skull And there's actually other secret societies at Yale, many of them. The two other really old ones are the Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head Society. I know, but you know, Skull and Bones gets all the ink. Actually, this comes up a little bit later in our podcast. What a cool name, Wolf's Head Society, but you never hear about it. Yeah, well, that's because the... the presidents weren't members of Wolf's Head. That's you know, true. Bush was a member. Only know. CEOs. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. But I think eventually, I just actually got a book on Skull and Bones, so I think we will be revisiting that. I think it's no no big mystery that Yale, which is ranked second in the country behind Harvard, <laughs> um, it was exactly the type of place that would attract someone like Annie Lay. She was actually voted in her high school the most likely to be the next Einstein. Wow. Yeah. She was really, really... She was hot stuff. She was, Yeah. She was an impressive girl in every way. I mean, yep. She was beautiful. She was brilliant. She was funny. She seems like she had like a quirky, silly personality. She did. And Some so, style. Yeah. So born in 1985, Annie grew up in San Jose, California. She was the daughter of Vietnamese immigrants and was raised by her aunt and uncle. She flew through high school, Laura, and graduated valedictorian. And she was just, like you said, she's just a rare combination of like strikingly beautiful, totally brilliant. Oh, and she was like a slip of a girl. She was 4'11", 90 pounds. She was tiny. Tiny. And just like gorgeous and just the whole package. She was the whole package. And I actually read Stella Sand's book about Annie's case. And Annie, what I liked about it was she was fantastic, but she wasn't a perfect human being either. It's like apparently like what one thing I read is like that she had applied to 102 colleges. Which is insane. That's like super type A. I totally relate. And when when she was rejected by one of the ones that she really wanted to get into, she sent them a picture of her bum. Like, you know, like kind of like screw you kind of thing. It's like... I love it. But see, I love the imperfection because I feel like with so many victims, we just, they get very deified and then we don't see their humanity. Exactly. And we're all, you know, she's a person. Of- and But I love that she was kind of, like, she's kind of saucy. She's a bit of a firecracker. And yeah. one thing I loved that I read about her is that she didn't have a whole lot of money. She came from very modest means. She would go into thrift stores and, like, search around for Chanel stuff. Oh, like, I love that. Or, like, big funky earrings. Cool. Yes. She's just cool. So you she know? had some style, which I love. 
And she decided to go to University of Rochester, and she got a full scholarship. That's right. And she majored in biology. And that was worth like 160000 University of Rochester is a private school. It's not a state school. Yes, majoring in biology. And Sarah, she, I didn't even understand this because I thought she... <laughs> Okay. I, I did go to University of Miami. So I, I thought the GPAs only went up to 4.0 and she had a 4.3 GPA. This went right over my head. And I, I, I kind of feel like it's it's such a weird reference, but I feel like it's like in Spinal Tap when he turns the volume to up. 11. To 11. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I can't conceive of it. You I know. know right? <laughs> but it only goes to 10, but it could go to 11. Right? That's right. At Rochester, she meets... The love of her life. That's right. Jonathan Wadowski. Right. They had made future plans together, but Annie ended up going to Yale for grad school and Jonathan went to Columbia. And like, although they're separated after graduation from Rochester, obviously. So, and although they're separated, they were only like a 90 minute train ride apart. Yeah. A lot of people may not realize that, but it's really not that. Take Amtrak from New Haven to Manhattan. Not far at all. You know, anyways, they're in constant contact. It's just very easy to do now. At Yale, Annie excelled as well, and much of her research was done at a lab located at 10 Amistad in New Haven. And her research in pharmacology focused on diabetes, MS, and cancer research. One thing I read about 10 Amistad, and it's just called 10 Amistad, it had a high-level security system, Laura, so each person had a key card that they would swipe to gain entrance, not only to the main entrance, but in the individual labs. I guess Yale instituted the security after a spate of attacks by animal activists on research labs at other universities. They were sort of trying to protest the treatment of animals in these labs. And so there had been a number of incidences. And after that, Yale instituted this pretty high level. It's like a fortress, basically. I found interesting. And I mean, I've been to New Haven and we're obviously from the Northeast. And I wasn't even aware of this. Maybe a lot of other people who aren't from the Northeast wouldn't be aware. But New Haven... Even in 2010, so a year after this happened, was rated the fourth most dangerous city in the nation. That's right. And that actually, I mean, that 10 Amistad was like right on the cusp of a really bad neighborhood. Yes. So I lived in New Haven and I can like attest to the fact it's pretty gritty. You know? Yeah. I mean, New yeah. Haven, I mean, many people don't know that Yale is in a really bad neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, there's, and there's really a lot of tension between like the students and the city between town and gown town you know know. that comes into play that thing in in this case and it it happens in many i mean we we've seen that here and even in cambridge but we this happens a lot in cities with universities but it seems very distinct here because there's such a mark in the socioeconomic differences absolutely um between yale and the and the locals ironically annie had written an article about safety on campus I think she must have felt the need for traipsing back and forth between her apartment in New Haven and the lab. I guess she took this sort of um, shuttle bus between... Yeah, and she was very aware of her surroundings and she was very cautious. So she was aware of the danger. However, you're right. In Tenamistad, she seemed to be very safe. How much safer could you feel in a fortress like that? Right. But on September 8th, 2009, Annie swiped into Ten Amistad to begin her day. 
She must have been totally excited, Laura. She and Jonathan were getting married that coming Sunday in Syosset, Long Island. Yes, I used to live in New York, so. And she had planned the wedding down to every detail. The flowers, yeah. everything. I mean, it yeah. was days away. Everything right. had been planned. So when Andy doesn't return home or call Jonathan, you know, she had spoken to him that morning, but when she doesn't get in touch with him again in the day, her roommate, Natalie Powers, gets concerned, and she winds up calling Jonathan. And Jonathan's worried. I mean, you know, we're I think they're day, both worried. They're days away from the wedding. I mean, the fact that he hasn't heard from her all day. And they, they'd been in constant contact. I think I mean, they texted yeah. all the time. Of course. Yeah. So by 11 p.m., they're both extremely concerned and they call the police. That's right. So the alarm bells are set right away. They know there's something wrong, that she's out of touch. And the police respond immediately and they find Annie's purse, her cell phone, and a planner in an office in the lab. But where was Annie? Jonathan arrived in New Haven and was immediately ruled out as a suspect. But what had happened to this beautiful, diminutive bride-to-be, Laura? So by the next day, the press immediately latched on to this sexy story. Annie Lay's disappearance became the headline, only trumped by coverage of Barack Obama. If people don't remember this case, I mean, this was huge. I remember. I mean, this was national coverage. This was Nancy Grace. This was everybody. everybody. Keep in mind, too, there had been these high profile Mm -hmm. runaway bride stories in the press. And like in 2005, Jennifer Willabanks, she had faked her own disappearance to get out of her wedding. Willowbanks claimed that she'd been kidnapped and sexually assaulted by a Hispanic man and a Caucasian woman. And there was some speculation that Annie was also a runaway bride. And I can't imagine the pain that that must have caused Jonathan to because he, he knew she wasn't. They were madly in love. I think the police, obviously, you have to think of every scenario when this first happens, and they just don't know. I mean, I don't think that they thought that for very long. That was just an initial, you know, they're going to go over every case scenario, and with a wedding that close, of course, it's going to cross their mind. They looked at various people. There had been a professor who had canceled his class sort of very suddenly the morning of Annie's disappearance, and he became a suspect. The police also wondered if Annie had met foul play in New Haven. Had someone from the abutting rough neighborhood somehow gained entrance to the fortress-like security of 10 Amistad. Police couldn't find any evidence that she'd been abducted out of the lab or that Annie had left that day. Like we mentioned, ironically, Annie had written an article of how not to become a victim of crime. And she had pointed out like the inordinate rate of crime at Yale compared to other universities, basically. She was comparing like... To other Ivies in particular. Exactly, yeah. The mood changed on September 10th when a researcher in the lab found a tube of hand wipes with what appeared to be blood stains. She quickly notified the police. So it was the behavior of a lab tech that drew the attention of the police. His name was Raymond Clark III. He was hovering, and what happened was the police go to try to see this tube of hand wipes, which I take to be, when I say a tube, I think it was one of those like, like Clorox yeah, hand wipes. Yeah, Clorox hand wipe type things. So this tech was kind of hovering in the opinion of the investigator 
she felt like he was trying to kind of block her view of the wipes and that he kind of turned, he actually turns the tube around Mm -hmm. so that the blood isn't so obvious, keeps coming and going, and he seems nervous, seemed to be cleaning areas that were already clean. He's kind of like hovering. He becomes a person of interest. And when he's questioned, Clark had said he saw Annie Lay come in the morning of September 8th and that she left a couple of hours later carrying some belongings and two bags of mouse food. And there were, honestly, Laura, there were 70 cameras in and around 10 Amistad. The police pour over the footage and they can't find any footage of Annie other than her coming in the morning of September 8th. They start to think, was this guy Clark trying to mislead them? And it appears that he is trying to mislead him. But Sarah, who is Raymond Clark? So Clark was born in 1985. So he was 24 years old, just like Annie was. And he was known to be really like outgoing. I sort of see him as this like football guy, jockey, jocular kind of dude. Play softball on the weekends. He wasn't bad looking, but apparently he also had a dark side. His high school girlfriend, Jessica De La Roca, accused him of sexual assault and said that he was very controlling. She didn't take out any formal charges on him. I think she was kind of like, as long as you leave me alone, I'm not going to kind of take action. So when Clark applied to Ten Amistad for a tech position, he had a clean record on paper. He also had a few family members, I think his sister and his brother and his fiancée, who also kind of got him the job. They, they, were they, all, they vouched for him, yeah. basically, I think. Well, I know. I mean, he was fine on paper. Now, if they had run a background check on him, nothing would have come up. As a tech at the lab, Clark was basically a glorified janitor. They sort of referred to them as a like a shit cleaner upper and a mouse handler. I don't know. I don't want to diminish the job. No, I think that's what worker. The, I, think, I, I know, I think but that, I think that's what the techs called themselves. Basically, um, I, I don't know. I, I think that further kind of separates the the. And creates like a further class structure within the lab. That's true. But truthfully, his, his job included cleaning animal cages and when necessary, euthanizing and disposing the animals. Right. But I don't like to further label them and create more of a rift between the... That's true. But you got I got to think that part of the friction between the techs and the researchers was that it actually fell on the techs to make sure protocols for cleanliness were enforced. By many accounts, Clark was totally controlling, basically like the Stasi of of clean cages. There is clearly a microcosm of the town and gallon thing going on in this lab. There had been some emails with Annie. She may have been more concerned with her research than cleanliness. She had left a mouse cages kind of messy and he had emailed her although those emails appear to be purely professional he had asked her to keep things a little tidier but he does seem to have had you know people his co-workers said that he was very controlling Mm -hmm. he liked things done a certain way and I, I think his control was not only in the lab I mean Clark lived with and was engaged to a woman named Jessica Homica and so his controlling behavior towards her had been noticed by his neighbors so clearly this is an issue for him. The police review the card swipe activity at 10 Amistad. On September 8th, at 10.11 a.m., Annie Lay swiped into room G13. At 10.40, Clark also swiped into G13. Then at 11.04, he swiped into G13 again. And for the next 45 minutes, Laura, there was no further swipes by Clark. The police also noticed 
really unusual activity on Clark's card for that day for both G13 and G22. The volume of swipes was unusually high, 55 times going back and forth between G13 and G22. Yeah, and I think that was like 10 times higher than his normal, than his normal, you know, his normal volume on a day would be. So it was like extremely unusual when they compared it to what he would normally do on a regular day. That's right. And on that same day, the day that Annie disappears, what happens at 1.10 p.m.? So 1.10 p.m., a fire alarm goes off, which clears the building. And in reviewing the footage, the police noticed that neither Annie Lay or Raymond Clark left the building. They start to think may have also been intentional. They also noticed that when they see Raymond Clark again, he has different clothes on. And they also notice scratches, which... He attributes to his cat, like they always do, Sarah. They, and it's always the cat, man. These, I these, mean, cat, these cats are really scratchy. I'm really, really glad that the podcast is not scratching my face and my hands. and Or the podcast's dad, which I have all over. I have had cats for years. I have never been scratched in the face by a cat. But every murderer we get has, who has a struggling victim has says it's the cat. Yeah, that's right. Suspect and cat scratches. Okay, on that's their right. arms and face and chest. Yeah. It's always like these people get, you know. It's really peculiar. Yeah. So on September 12th, the police caught a break and they noticed a ceiling panel that looked like it was loose. So they knocked the ceiling panel away and they find a bloody glove and a, and a sock that also has blood on it. They also find a pair of boots with the initial RC that appeared to have blood spatter on them. They, and they also recover a bloody lab coat that had been thrown away. So there was no doubt that Annie was a victim of foul play and Raymond Clark was firmly in the police crosshairs at this time. And then, Sarah, a very sad day on September 13th, the day of her wedding, people in the lab noticed a foul odor coming from the locker room and the police brought cadaver dogs in. Well, it's it's called a chase. I imagine a tiny little hallway full of pipes. Oh, okay. You know. Yeah. And, this, and, and the cadaver dogs, you know, find her remains. And instead of a wedding, there was a funeral that was being planned. Yep. And this was a very sad and tragic day for her fiancé and her family. Absolutely awful. So, meanwhile, the police had been watching Clark, and they stepped up their investigation. So they issued a search warrant for his apartment, and they took Clark's DNA. They arrested Clark on September 17th for murder. Clark gets an attorney and really clams up. Everyone is wondering, what drove this guy to murder Annie? During their surveillance of Clark. And up to the time of his arrest, Laurie, he was going to sports games and like family gatherings, just like life as, you know, life per usual kind of thing. Clark doesn't say a word and there's wild speculation about what motivated him. I think before we talk about Clark's motivations, though, we really need to figure out what the, like, what the pathologist found when they did an autopsy on so Sarah Lay died from asphyxiation, even though she had other injuries. And what were they? So she also suffered from a broken jaw and a broken collarbone and a blow to her head. Asphyxiation was particularly brutal. I mean, it really was. A, they could tell it was a chokehold. It was like, and there's some indication that there was sexual assault. Her, her, you know, when she was found in the chase, 
Her bra is pushed up and her panties were pulled down to her ankles. And there was also semen found on her body. So, so there's some sexual motivation. There is some sexual motivation. They also find a green pen. And can you explain the significance of the green pen, Laura? Well, Raymond Clark had this signature green pen. So he signed in every day to work with the green pen. So if you were to look at the sign-in sheet every day, you could literally look down and just find the green signature and find him every day. Right. On the sign-in. So he was very distinctive with his green pen. And this green pen was found with her body. And on the green pen was a mix of both of their DNAs. Right. So this was a very distinctive pen that he always used. And he must have mistakenly, it's kind of like the... It's kind of like the Leopold glasses in some yeah, ways. Yeah, it was know? a mistake. And there's even some evidence he tried to get it out with a wire or something. But Yeah, that's right. I read that too. Like he had yeah. fishing wire and like gum and right. like the, some idea that he was going to open up the chase and like try to retrieve the green right. pen with it. But he was yeah. unable to get it out because it was definitely something that would be tied back to him. Right. Yes, there's no doubt that he did it. Like he's guilty as sin. Right. We don't know why and... You know, we should also mention here that there was you know, a lot of blowback because, you know, over 100 law enforcement agencies were involved in this case, including law enforcement in California and New York and Connecticut, Yale. There was a $10,000 reward and there was a lot of blowback on this case later because of the attention it was given compared to other crimes that were occurring at the same time. We'll speak to that. We'll speak in, to that later. In a, in a bit. I do want to go back a little bit and have a discussion with you about Clark's motivations. I have my own working theory about what happened. What do you think happened? I don't think we'll ever know, Sarah. I think there may have been a building growing resentment against her. And I think there definitely was a sexual component here. And I think maybe he snapped. I think maybe she did something to really piss him off, left something messy, argued with him, and he just snapped. I have to agree with you on this. I think Annie was the kind of person you just mess with her in some ways. I think she was kind of a tiny but very formidable type of person. I bet you she kind of thought like, screw you, I'm doing cutting edge research here. If my mouse cages are too dirty, hey, too bad, you know, and his control issues maybe took over. And I think there is that disparity between the sort of the town and gown kind of thing. He, but I mean, he definitely must have had some psychopathy and sexual deviance in him in order to be able to I think find the, excitement I, and ejaculate with a dead body. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, we dead. don't we don't know if she was dead or if he. Oh, raped but her I mean, even right, but even to be able to be, you know, but the, but the violence that happened the, to her was pre mortem. The breaking of the jaw. Right, but even the, to be able to be excited by that, that's not something a normal man. But we, we don't know the sequence of events, Laura. We don't know if it may be that he had, that has been speculated that he hit on her and she sort of rebuffed him. I think there was probably more of an anger involved than, than, I, me than too. him hitting on her. I think the sexual assault for him was in some ways secondary. Me too, about yeah. power and control and less about sex. I, I think that's probably how I see it. If it was more about rape being a control and power thing. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. I think she, I think he was a control freak and she wasn't going to have it and he lost control. Yeah, that, I, I, I think the same thing. And Stop agreeing with me, Laura. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know we do, we don't have many cases we agree on. I mean, this is this one is this one is kind of an open and shut case because I mean, as we do go on, I mean, in March 2011, he is going to plead guilty to these charges. He does stay quiet for a year and a half, Sarah. He pleads not guilty. That's right, and he takes an Alford plea, which means that he concedes that the prosecutor has enough evidence to find him guilty, but he takes the plea so that he actually only, well, only serves 44 years without parole. Will serve. Will serve. Is serving. Is serving. Connecticut, at this time, had not yet. They were in the process of getting rid of the death penalty, so they really weren't giving it out anymore. You found that out. I find that really interesting, but that was looming for him because you had said that they got rid of it formally in 2012. Right, but they were trying already. So they really weren't giving it out in 2010. I mean, they were trying to get rid of it in 2009. It wasn't completely gotten rid of to 2012. The people still on death row at 2012 wound up getting their sentences, got commuted in 2015. So I don't think that was a big reason for him to plead. I do think there's some remorse there. I think they did it to avoid a trial. I mean, he could have gotten 60 years on each count. So it was like 40 years or life. But as somebody pointed out too, he'll be 70 years old when he gets out if he survives. And that perhaps some of the motivation for doing that is it costs a lot of money for the system to take care of elderly. Right. It's sort of considered after 70, you're not really that going to be that big of a danger to anybody. Right. And you're going to be right. And so then you can kind of come out and be a drain on society, not on the prison system. Although I've had cases where I've worked on where the person becomes a criminal in their 70s after not having... <laughs> Not having anything, and then I guess they just decide on this life of crime. Oh well, you know. Yeah, I don't know, but well, we'll, we'll we should, we have many years here to see with him. But this is really truly a tragic case. It brought up a lot of issues. I think it did raise a lot of media issues about whose whose life, the importance of of the press coverage in these cases. I mean, the press coverage in this was just off the hook, and I I have to say, forgive me for saying this, but I really do think the fact that she was so Hollywood starlet beautiful had a lot to do with the press coverage. Well, and I think the Ivy League too, I mean, one writer said that she felt like one Ivy League's life was almost worth three in a regular school because, Sarah, I mean, I went through some names of some other missing students. You weren't able to recognize any of those names. That's right. And who who are those names? Andrew Graham, who was killed at the University of Colorado, Eve Carlson, who was killed at UNC Chapel Hill, Morgan Harrington, from Virginia State. I mean, these are all students who were killed in colleges and there were not a hundred law enforcement agencies involved. So these were all other cases, Sarah, where students were murdered or missing in colleges and they didn't get the same attention. And I'm not putting this on law enforcement because all of these cases have law enforcement involved and cops who would love to have this type of press attention. This is really more the press because law enforcement was questioned about this and they put it more on the press saying they would love to have the press attention on these other cases. We kind of feed into this here at Ivy League Burners because these are the cases that kind of interest us as well. For sure, for sure. But I do think it's important to point out, as you said, the discrepancy between, because I had never heard of these other cases. These are kids whose parents are frantic and despairing and maybe gone missing or murdered, and they just didn't garner the same attention that any lay did. 
And I think perhaps it is the death of the potential. You know, she had so much potential. Uh, perhaps she could have cured cancer. Uh, yeah. Perhaps that... she could have made some big breakthrough. And I think that perhaps we mourn the possibility of that. We do. I mean, she had a very bright future in front of her. And who knows what that would have been. Right. And we really don't know the motive here. So there's really a lot of things left unanswered. And I think that's probably why this case continues to linger and leaves us with so many questions. It does. And I do think that Ray Clark, probably that was part of the resentment. I don't think he was really going anywhere in his life. And that's the recognition when you see somebody who is going places in their lives and you're not. That's possibly part of the resentment. And you know. well, we can all we can do, Sarah, is speculate because we you know we're really never going to know because he spoke up to apologize at sentencing, but that really didn't tell us anything. So we're going to just have to leave it there, and I guess the listener is going to just have to speculate for themselves. That's right. We do want to do a little bit of a shout out to the people who have donated and who have contributed. This this is Nina. This is Catherine. Sai. Somebody very special to me, and Catherine and Nina are too. Um, Grace, our makeup consultant, and our like number one, one of our number one fans. That's right, Jonathan B. Thank you so much. Grace has also become my early morning text buddy. My own family, my lovely sister Margaret Weir, and my nephew Logan. My dad. Yep, that's right. Um, My own parents. Yeah, so we're getting a lot of support, and we really appreciate it. So we want to thank everybody. Absolutely. This week's trailer is a fact. Fabulous podcast called Killer Stories. It's a great one. It's a great one. And Bobby, who is the podcaster, is just like the hottest young mom. And she ha- and she is just phenomenal and completely gorgeous. I just think she's going to make a real wave in podcasting. And I want everybody to check her out. She's also done something really fabulous, Sarah, which my mother is a huge fan of. She's put all of her episodes really easily accessible online. So like some people who are a little challenged by podcasting, Cast apps. She's made it super easy for them to listen. So my mother's already binged her whole season. That's so cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So check out Bobby right now at Killer Stories and please subscribe and follow and support her because she's awesome. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next week. I'm Bobby Holmes, host of Killer Stories. If the name doesn't give it away, Killer Stories is a true crime podcast where I primarily discuss cases of murder. I feel like it's important to learn the history of both the victim and their attacker in order to try to figure out the why behind the killing. What motivated them? Was it a cheating husband trying to get rid of his wife and start a new life? An abused child who grew up to be a serial killer and can't control his urges? Or maybe it's an unsolved case with multiple theories and suspects to cover. From America's first serial killer in the 1800s to modern day cases and everything in between, join me every Thursday for a new episode of True Crime Storytelling. You can listen to Killer Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.